0: Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause. The next day to Rhodes, and there from Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When he had come in the side of Cyprus. Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed there with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's hand And bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were urged for him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem in the name of the Lord Jesus.'" And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After three days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Here is the reading of God's word. Father, we do thank you once
1: again for the privilege of being able to gather as we do here, I'm in such comfort, so blessed, pray that you would minister to us by way of your Holy Spirit, empower me to declare your truth, your people would be sanctified, and Lord bring to life any who are not in Christ this day, we pray, amen. January 8th, 1956, 28-year-old Jim Elliott. Missionary to Ecuador, along with four missionary partner, partners and friends, uh, were speared to death um, on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Carreri River by a fierce tribe that they were trying to reach for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Six years earlier, Jim Elliott wrote a journal entry that read, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is a basic summary of what is taking place here in Acts chapter 21. Um, The Christian life of faith often takes you outside um, of a particular um, comfort zone. And you don't have to be a missionary to be taken out of a particular comfort zone. And that requires us, and, and not only requires us, but by way of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to do things that the world and sometimes even those within the church regard as foolish. Yet there is always something that outdoes. There is always something that supersedes our welfare and our ease of life, and that is living by faith with a concern that, verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. That's the title of this morning's message. The will of the Lord be done. Paul was resolute, steadfast, that the will of the Lord be carried out in and through his life. Now we left the scene last Lord's Day with Paul speaking to the elders from the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, whom he had called down to the port city of Miletus for a change of guard, for a passing of the torch. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. He reminded them. He warned them regarding the shepherding of God's sheep, the shepherding of the Lord's church and you see there in chapter 20 and verse 32 he said and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified so Paul commends these elders both to God and the word of his grace which is a synonym for the gospel And when he was finished, we witnessed the emotional response and their farewell. We see that in verses 36 to 38 as he makes his way to the ship. And here now in verse 1, when he had departed from them, he set sail. He he now begins his final leg of his journey to Jerusalem, makes mention of a few stops along the way. You can see that on the map we have here. Um, They began the journey um, on a small ship. This would be uh, what was referred to as a coasting ship. Um, It wasn't large or strong enough to sail the open sea. So if you could blow that up a little. You have the island of Kaz. They come around to Rhodes. There's Patara. And then they shoot across. Once they change ships, they shoot across to Phoenicia. Um, That is where Tyre is located. So here, this is his, his last um, leg as he prepares to enter into um, Jerusalem. Um, they begin the journey, I said, on, on a coasting ship. They go to the uh, island um, of Cos, there, um, home of the renowned um, medical school founded by um, Hippocrates, from whom we get the oath um, of medical ethics, the Hippocratic Oath, and then another day's journey, they head to Rhodes, um, home of um, Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven ancient wonders um, of the world. It was a bronze statue that stood 160 feet high. That's including the pedestal, and you would enter into the harbor through the legs of Colossus of Rhodes. It was destroyed by an earthquake Um, uh, about 150 years before Paul entered the harbor, but there would be huge pieces um, of the figure that remained for centuries. So he enters in now to to Rhodes, and then another day's journey, notice, to Patara. That's where they would um, have to change ships onto one that would be able to to bear the open seas of the Mediterranean. Um, They pass Cyprus on the port side, the island of Cyprus, and then finally into Syria, That is Tyre, where they um, unload their cargo. And then in verse 4, notice, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. Now, that's a chief characteristic of Paul, isn't it? Where are the believers? Where are the Christians? I want to meet them, and he stays seven days. You'll recall that's what he did in Troas. You remember back in chapter twenty. Um, he was with them for seven days, and verse 7, chapter 20, we read that they assembled together, and they met on the first day of the week, verse 7. Literally that reads, and let me say something about that sentence, first day of the week, because literally it reads, first after Sabbath, the phrase is, meaton sabaton, first of weeks. I say that because in case you ever encounter a Seventh-day Adventist, I have a Seventh-day Adventist church near my home. They'll knock on your door occasionally, and, and they'll say that you worshiping the Lord on Sunday is you having taken the mark of the beast. Did you know that? Well, what they'll do, and I want to pause for a moment for a little quipping moment, Um, They they will argue that the Greek words used in verse 7, chapter 20, refer to them as gathering on the weekly Sabbath, Saturday, not Sunday, the Lord's Day. Reason being is that they carelessly look and see the word sabbaton, in the Greek, and they incorrectly assume that it refers to the weekly Sabbath. So they point out and say, see, it's right there. They met on the Sabbath. First day of the week is an incorrect translation, they'll say. No, 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 no. They met on meaton sabbaton first after Sabbath. You remember in Luke 18, you remember the Pharisee? He's saying, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. You know, not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I fast dis sabaton, dis sabaton. Here in chapter 20, verse 7. They gathered on the first of weeks miotoned Sabaton. So take out your pens in case you ever come across a Seventh-day Adventist. If Miaton me Sabaton means seventh-day Sabbath day, then it creates a contradiction with regard to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Go in case you ever. Met by a Seventh-day Adventist. Take them to Mark chapter 16. This is just one place. Mark 16 verse 1. This is what we read. When the Sabbath was over, that's the normal expression for Sabbath day. When it was over, when would it be over? 6 p.m. Saturday. The Sabbath ran from Friday evening to Saturday evening. When the Sabbath was over, 6 p.m. Saturday, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices. Where did they buy spices? Spices in the market that reopened when the Sabbath was over, 6 p.m. Saturday. And why did they buy spices? So that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. Go and anoint it when? Mark 16, verse 2. Very early on, miaton sabbaton. First day of the week. First after Sabbath. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. That's Sunday morning. So, friends, that's just a little biblical ammunition when one of these Seventh-day Adventists knocks on the door and says that you've received the mark of the beast. Are you with me? Okay, that, that was a pause. So, back to the text. Verse four, Paul, always concerned about the church, immediately seeks out now Christians entire. He's there for seven days. You know, Paul is no sightseer, is he? And that's very significant because these ports were culturally rich Beautiful places. As a matter of fact, Henry Ward Beecher, 19th century preacher, said this about Paul. He once stated that Paul was devoid of artistic sense. (laughs) He said this, Having traveled through these cities of Asia packed with things of beauty and artistic merit and value, never by a line did he refer to any of those things. End quote. Now that's true. That's true, but I do not believe that Paul was lacking any sense of culture or art. As a matter of fact, I think he understood those things very well. He had a very well trained palate, if you will, for such things. But when it comes to priorities, the Apostle Paul, the priority of his life was with things regarding God Almighty. These priorities, they took first place. Priorities, my friends, that are never more appreciated than the moment of life's greatest experience, which is death. You ever think about that? Life's greatest experience is death. To enter into the presence of the triune God, unprepared, is the worst of all experiences. This was Paul's priority. So to have the most successful, most significant, noteworthy kind of life by mere human standards here in this present life will only prove to be worthless, foolish, trivial, and insignificant in the light of eternity if you are not in Christ when you die. That was Paul's priority. That's why he didn't go sightseeing. He comes into. He comes into town and he says, where are the Christians? Where are my beloved brethren? I want to spend time with them. So notice, while he was with them, verse 4b, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Okay, now... By gathering facts from other portions of the New Testament, we know that Paul is preparing to take a gift, an offering, to Jerusalem. Okay, we're aware of that, amen? That's his goal. The church there was considerably poorer than the the churches in Macedonia and in Asia. So he's going there by faith with an offering collected mostly by way of Gentile churches. So this, as I said a few weeks ago, really puts a Gentile face on this mission, going back into Jerusalem and providing this offering for for the church there. So through the Spirit, notice, they warned him. Not not through the flesh, but through the Spirit, they warned him. Now, this this, this has caused some readers confusion. Because we know that Paul, here by faith, led by the Spirit, wants to bring an offering to Jerusalem, while along the way, Christian brothers and sisters, by the Spirit, have a revelation that he will be in danger. So therefore, they deduce from that that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Danger is waiting. So the Spirit tells them, danger awaits Paul. They they interpret that as, don't go. That's a very natural response, is it not? Very natural. If we know there's looming danger, we'll say don't go that way. And here, the Spirit, by way of revelation, grants these believers this insight. But remember, Paul was well aware of his suffering, was he not? So it's not a stretch to imagine Paul saying at this point, when they warn him, don't go, that hey, the Lord has already impressed upon my heart and he's made clear to my mind that I will suffer. He's made that very clear. When, when, when he arrested me, on the road to Damascus, I wasn't seeking Jesus. I was seeking to punish those who follow him. He arrested me, he blinded me, he drove me to my face on the ground, and then through others, he informed me how many things I must suffer for his name's sake. And when I was recently in Miletus, With the Ephesian elders, I told them, look at verse 22, chapter 20. Bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in what city? Every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Verse 5. When our days there were ended, we left and started out on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed for them. We stayed with them for a day. So here again, we see this family feeling, right? You have men, you have their wives, you have these children, they're on the beach, and they're saying farewell. So he goes from Tyre to Ptolemaeus. I'm staying with them for a day. And again, what do we see over and over and over again? Christian hospitality. Christian hospitality. This is a detail that Luke brings out for us over and over again fellowship. Fellowship that knits believers together. Hospitality. So Paul spends time with believers there entire. He does the same thing there at Ptolemaeus. He does the same thing now down in Caesarea, where we are now. And here in verses 8 through 16, something like verse 4 happens again. Paul finds the Christians, he he stays with them, they warn him of looming danger, and he and his team depart. Notice verse 8, on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now when did we meet Philip? You remember? Way back in Acts 6. Back in Acts 6, Philip was one of the seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. They were appointed to the duty of serving, serving, tables. Serving, tables. And then later, after the stoning of Stephen, who was also um, one of these chosen to serve, when Saul, the apostle Paul, was ravaging the church, Remember, Philip was dispelled, he was dispersed out of Jerusalem, and eventually he's out in the desert and he meets meets up with an Ethiopian eunuch and leads him to Christ, Philip the evangelist. That was in Acts 8. So 20 years before this visit, 20 years before this fellowship in Caesarea, Philip had been driven out of Jerusalem by way of... The breathing threats of one named Saul, the Apostle Paul. Here they are, brothers in Christ, 20 years later. And then Acts 8, verse 40, um, tells us that that is when Philip came into Caesarea. He has served and preached faithfully for 20 years. You know, I run into Christians... Sometimes that I served with 20 years ago. And they're still faithfully walking with the Lord and serving him. And I'm always encouraged. I'm always encouraged. I love to see them. I love to reminisce. I love to hear about the ministries that they're involved in. And you know what? Most of them are filled with joy. They're not bitter. They're not ornery. They're not quarrelsome. You ever meet them? The ordinary quarrelsome kinds? Black holes of joy. (laughs) You ever meet a black hole of joy? Not these folks. I've met them. I've seen them. I run into them. and, and, And they're just full of joy, still walking with the Lord, serving the Lord. Because sometimes I come across people, and they are what we refer to as what the Bible refers to as apostates. They don't trust Christ as they say they once did. They're into some weird belief system or spirituality. They deny Christ. Apostasy. So when I run into these who've been faithful for 20 years, it bolsters joy within me. Even though all of our minute doctrines might not line up, we are one in Christ. I'm encouraged. They're encouraged. 20 years, we see here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen, fellow brothers and sisters? So 20 years have passed since the dispersion in Jerusalem. So you can imagine the joy in fellowship here. Caesarea, Philip's home, the apostle Paul, he's in his home with the original persecutor of the church, Paul. Remember he was breathing threats, now they're brothers. Here they are, I love this. Now Luke tells us that um, during those 20 years Philip and his wife um, had four daughters. They're grown now and they're unmarried and they're all given the gift of prophecy. they're, They're prophetesses, not pastors. Not pastors. There's no such thing. Sorry, ladies. No such thing as female pastors, though you may call yourself that. You're not a pastor. These were prophetesses, and that was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of Joel, was it not? Remember on the day of Pentecost? Peter's preaching, and he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall... Prophesy, And his four daughters were given that revelatory gift, which was very strategic, by the way, for the early church. Now, history tells us that three of the four daughters lived into their 90s and were very beneficial in, in giving um, information to the early church fathers into their 90s, three of the four. So here they are, prophetesses. We don't know what they prophesied, but that was the gift they were given. So here again, we see rich fellowship. Brothers, sisters, together, strengthening one another. There's a lesson here for us, beloved, all this fellowship, all these relationships. Our relationships with one another strengthen us. They strengthen us as we spend time together. Christian fellowship, beloved, is an engaged activity. It's a two-way street. And it's so important for the health of the body of Christ. We see it over and over again in the early church. You know, in the church, we ought to have fellowship with everyone and deep friendships with some. You can't be best friends with everyone, amen? There's some folks we're, we're friends with. We have deep friends. But we ought to have fellowship with everyone. I have a friend. We're, we work out together. We go to breakfast together. And uh, the other day, we were walking into the soup plantation. And he said to me on the way, he said, You know, my assistant told me that she has a girlfriend, and it's her best friend because it's a low-maintenance friendship. And then he went on to say, he goes, I think that our relationship has been so strong over the last 18 years or so because it's low maintenance. In other words, there's no drama. We, we, can, we can see one another every single week, or we can go two months without seeing one another. We can just pick up where we were and it's not like, why didn't you text me? Right? Right? And if you think that only happens with women, that's not true. (laughs) We can sit across from one another, and we don't say a word for, say, five minutes. And we're not in the least bit uncomfortable. That's a strong friendship. We can't have friendships like that with everyone, but we can have fellowship. It encourages us, and it strengthens us. Sometimes Christians will say, I don't have any friends in the church. The church isn't providing this for me. Friends, that's the wrong attitude. Don't have that attitude. Instead, ask, what can I do to encourage another? What can I do in spending time with someone, I don't care if it's five minutes, ten minutes, to encourage them in this faith once and for all delivered to the saints? You'll never be able to encourage them unless you spend time with them. Fellowship, don't expect friendship or deep friendship with everyone. It's just unreasonable. Don't be one who says, why aren't others meeting my felt needs? Don't ask that. Instead, how can I serve to encourage another. We see this over and over again. And always remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. receive." That is ministry. Serve without expecting anything back. Just serve, because we've been given so much in Christ. Here they are. So we have hospitality, it's engaged fellowship. It does take sacrifice, friends, amen? It takes sacrifice. And I think that's the reason that Peter, when he writes 1 Peter chapter four, he says, show hospitality, show hospitality to one another without what? Without grumbling. Because we have a tendency to grumble. Grumble. Anyone besides myself. I've increased in the area of hospitality by way of the strength of my wife with the gift of hospitality. I just as soon sit home by myself, to be quite honest. So it's an engaged activity, all that to say encouragement for all of us. Now, that's one obvious mark of the early church, rich fellowship. Now, another obvious mark that arises yet again from the text is Paul's determination to do the will of God, a settled conviction that God's will would be done in and through his life. Now, notice he's warned of this forthcoming danger yet again, verse 10 As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, we've met Agabus before as well. Remember back in chapter 11, he he gave a prophecy there in Antioch of a great forthcoming famine that would spread throughout the, the known world. Okay, And consequently, the accuracy of that prophecy caused the disciples in Antioch to send yet another gift to the church in Jerusalem, who were greatly affected. So this proven prophet of God, who spoke by way of the Holy Spirit of God, he now takes Paul's belt, he binds his own hands and his own feet, however he did that, I I don't know. And then he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. What's this remind us of? some of our Old Testament prophets, who on some occasions provided object lessons dramatizing the very words of God that were given to them to speak. Ahijah tore his garments, prophesying how the the, the kingdom will be torn asunder and split and divided at the death of Solomon. Or Isaiah, who, who stripped naked and... That was to symbolize how God was going to strip bare the Egyptians. So this is a dramatized event here. Agabus takes this this belt and and symbolically binds his hands, and he says, this is what awaits Paul. Now, let me say this, because people have approached me in the past about this. They'll read this text, and they conclude that Agabus was wrong in his prophecy, that this is a false prophecy. I can't believe that the people don't read scripture more carefully. Now, since the Jews didn't actually bind Paul, okay, he will be seized, we'll see this next Lord's Day, he'll be seized in Jerusalem while in the temple and, and taken. But the details of the prophecy are that the Romans were the ones who actually bound him. You can see that in verse 33, they bind him with two chains. Okay, now what was happening happening prior to that? The Jews were literally beating on Paul. The Romans come, the, the soldiers, and they actually free him from the beating. And then they bind him with two chains. So he wasn't bound literally with a belt. He wasn't literally handed over to the Romans from the Jews, he was being beaten by the Jews, and the Gentiles intervened, okay? And then they put him in chains. Now, one principle, one principle of interpreting prophecy is to not interpret it in a wooden, literal sense, because it can be fulfilled in ways that are very surprising. What we're always after with most prophecies, not all, but with most is a the general scope of the revelation and prophecy are being fulfilled. And I wish some of my dispensational premillennial brothers would view eschatological prophecy with that principle in mind. Instead of thinking, that there's going to be a literal rebuilt temple in literal Jerusalem with a literal throne upon which Jesus will sit, ruling a geopolitical kingdom. (whistles) Amen? Amen. No crickets, no crickets, just amen. (laughs) How would you interpret this in a wooden literal sense? When you read that there'll be locusts like horses with faces of men, hair like a woman, teeth like a lion, tails that sting like a scorpion, good luck. (laughs) You have to go back to the Old Testament to get all that imagery and understand that this is a demonic horde. Demons are unseen, but they're fierce like that, not to be interpreted in a wooden, literal sense. Now, later, when Paul gets to Rome, beloved, and he's telling of what happened to him back in Jerusalem, he actually describes this incident with more clarity. Now, Agabus said, chapter 21, verse 11, Paul will be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. When Paul gets to Rome, he uses Agabus' words. You can see it there in Acts 28, verse 17. I was delivered from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He was chained by the Romans by way of the Jews who were beating him to a pulp. Amen? Prophecy what? Fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled. So after this legitimate prophetic word from one Agabus we see two responses. One from the church, the beloved people of God who love Paul, and the other from Paul. Notice verse 12. When he had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? That phrase there, breaking my heart, Means to soften or, or crumble. What are you doing beating on me in order to soften me up? You want to soften my will, that's the idea. And perhaps his will was being softened. We don't know. What are you doing trying to soften me up? And he calls them to stop. Just stop. And then he gives his reason why. Verse 13b, for I am ready. Not only to be bound, but but to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to one named Saul on the street called Straight. He's praying. I must show him how must he, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And here. I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's simply describing what he said back in chapter 20, verse 24. Now he's living it out. Living it out. Standing on the courage and confidence of conviction, my friends. The courage of conviction. Confidence of conviction, and that is his abandonment to doing the will of God, the will of the Lord. Now think about this. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem with a band of disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem with disciples. He has been opposed by hostile Jews. Those that want to kill him, they want want him dead. And now through the spirit, fellow believers warn Paul of more opposition from those Jews. And Paul, he has disclosed his readiness to lay down his life. He is determined to fulfill his ministry and not to be deflected from it in any way. Don't soften me up. This is not the will of God for me to stay here. I'm ready to be bound and die. Does that remind you of anyone, beloved? What's the connection we see? Paul is taking on the life of Christ. The life of his Lord. Paul's a Christian. He's a Christian. You take on the life of your Lord. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Providentially fulfilling The words of Christ, you must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus led his band of disciples to Jerusalem, facing opposition, submitting himself to the will of his father, and when Jesus announced what would befall him at Jerusalem, remember he was his own prophet. No need of an Agabus in Jesus' life. He served as his own prophet. And you remember in, after Caesarea Philippi and their little getaway, in Matthew 16, verse 21, look there. When Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on the will of God, God's interests, but man's. If you're here and you're not trusting Christ for your salvation, whatever you think salvation is, you don't believe, whatever the case may be, Jesus said, I go determined as he was to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, to be crucified, to rise the third day. If you don't understand the gospel, here it is. There's good news. That's it. Reason there's good news is there's bad news. God is holy and demands absolute holy perfection from you every moment of your entire life. To stand before God, you must be sinless. That's impossible because you're a sinner. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death. You will stand before Him and be judged. Good news? Jesus came to this earth, took on human flesh, totally God, fully God, fully man, and he said, No man takes my life. I've come to lay my life down as an atoning sacrifice for who? Many. Many. You need his righteousness in your place. He bore your punishment in your place if you're a believer. You repent a false belief repent of unbelief this day and entrust yourself to this Lord who is the Christ, the only way to the Father, and he promises that you will be saved from suffering the wrath that is due to you. He took it in your place on the cross. It is finished. And you'll be saved. Whenever the gospel prevails as it did in and through the life of Paul It will inevitably be opposed, either from within the church or from without. Even Christians sometimes don't like the whole counsel of God. They love to hear what you just heard, justification by faith alone. But when you get into the intricacies of application, now that I am saved, they'll blow up. Don't we? (laughs) Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Oh. When you're confronted by, with something from your spouse, and you know it's biblically true, and it chafes your pride, what's that? Bowing up against the whole counsel of God. It will be opposed. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord, be done. Beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. It's the ultimate mission of everything, isn't it? Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said in the garden, Father, Father, please let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, children, what was that cup regarding what? What? The wrath of God. Father, if it's possible, let this cup of your wrath pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. thy will be done. The the ultimate undertaking of all that we do is that the will of the Lord be done. Let me pause for a moment again. Christians, beloved brothers and sisters, as you live your daily Christian life, as you live it out, and, and you don't see big spectacular things happening, I want you to be encouraged by this. There's fruit that will be bore. You will see fruit, bearing fruit, in and through your lives when you least expect it. I'm going to tell you a little story. My, my uh, assistant, Ann, sent me an email. Someone was trying to get a hold of me. You don't mind me telling me, do you? I hope. All right. George, my boy. 20 years ago, he said, 20 years ago, I was a hoodlum on your street. And And you opened up your home for me. And you would let me skateboard in the park you built, skateboard park and all this, and played with my son and neighborhood kids. And you do not know the impact it had on me, so can you call me? So I gave him a call. And he goes, you wouldn't believe what the Lord has done in my life. And I always think about you and your wife And I went home and told my wife, she couldn't even remember who he is. (laughs) He goes, I remember Roxy having us on the way to school in your living room holding hands to pray before school. And I just want to encourage you all. What you're doing on a day-to-day basis, carrying out the will of God in and through your life, it is and it will bear fruit, though you may not see it now. In the hoodlum, as he called himself, I don't think you were a hoodlum. Here he is, in Christ, fellowshipping with us. And I love that. So be encouraged. I didn't know if I was going to apply that to the text today, but that's 20 years. I had no idea where this kid was. And the Lord was at work in his life. He's at work in your lives. He's at work in the lives of those you minister to, day in and day out. Amen? Be encouraged with that. So finally, they say, let the will of the Lord be done. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They give it to God, knowing that God is indeed omnipotent. He's all-powerful. His omnipotent will will be done. They realize that. Perhaps realizing that God did not exercise his omnipotent will To rescue and deliver his son from the cross. Did he? He didn't exercise his omnipotent will to deliver Paul from much harm. Beaten with rods five times, whipped, flogged, shipwrecked, and on and on it goes. He may not exercise his omnipotent will to deliver you and me from tribulation. But it's already been exercised to deliver us from hell on the cross. Because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, beloved, will they not persecute you? Yes. Of course they will. We might find ourselves saying with the Apostle Paul, that which we read from this morning, in Romans 8, together we read, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Nothing. Nothing. Come what may, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. After these days we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Okay, now don't miss this. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us. taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. So here are all these people pleading with Paul, don't go, don't go. You're going to be found, bound, and delivered over. And finally, after all the drama, <laughs> he departs and some of them go with him. This is, this is amazing to me because this shows us that courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. Instead of all their tears affecting Paul, instead of their tears softening him, his courage affected them. They knew all too well that this was a hated man, a marked man and now some of them are, we being, are willing to be identified with him all the way into Jerusalem where he will be bound. That, my friends, that's leadership. That is leadership. Albert Moeller, in his book, The Conviction to Lead, he wrote this, quote, passion, Passion is not a temporary state of mind. It is the constant source of energy for the leader and the greatest cause of attraction for followers. End quote. Paul said, follow me as I as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. He would later write to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Primary context, suffering. And for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He knew that if he were to die and when he is to die, he will go to be with the Lord, the presence of the very presence of his glorified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Reaffirming, reaffirming, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? May we, by his grace, serve and be willing to be true to our calling all the way through to the end of the race. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word once again. Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. How encouraging, how affirming, how reaffirming it is. Lord, please give us what we need to live day by day as we need it to stand and to do the will of you, our Lord, for your glory. Bless this, your word, to the hearts of your people. For Christ's sake, amen.